And it's uh, Easter time, as you know, we're coming up to Easter. Uh, and so what we want to do today is to, just as a one-off, focus uh, upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on his Father, we don't often think so much of what... Easter costs the Father. So I want us to do that through uh, a passage written by a man called Peter. It's in uh, his first letter. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1218. 1218. And I'm going to read from chapter 2, from verse 4 through to verse 10. One two one eight of the Church Bible, one Peter two verse four. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious, this unique gospel message. And as we've already recognised in prayer, we come this afternoon from very different backgrounds, very different weeks that we've passed through, but all have this one same need, to see afresh the preciousness of Christ, and if we haven't already seen it, to see it for the first time. So please, by your Holy Spirit, open your word up to us, speak to us from it, not only to our minds, but to our hearts, and then to our will, to our actions. Lord, come and speak to us this afternoon through your word. Amen. Now, the past 50 years, that's as long as I've been a Christian, I've seen a growing antagonism in this country towards Christianity. As a result, today there's huge pressure upon Christians to stay silent, to keep their faith private. Not least in the public square and in the workplace. A scenario unthinkable 50 years ago is commonplace today. And if you're a Christian, I would be very surprised if in the past week you've not experienced that in one way or another. You've been conscious of the pressure to keep quiet about your faith in Christ if you're a Christian. 
It may have been a situation in which you knew that if you spoke up about your Christian faith, you would be inviting derision and scorn or sarcasm, so you remained silent. It may be that uh, in your place of work, it's just assumed that Christianity is at best an irrelevance, at worst a pernicious evil, a dangerous dogma that has to be refuted and rejected at all costs. You may be very conscious of that pressure. Or it may be that actually there was a very natural opportunity that you had this week uh, to speak about your faith in Christ, but for whatever reason you lost the courage to do so, a bit frightened about what that person might think of you. Well, if that's the case, and I suspect it is for most of us here who are Christians, myself included, then the good news is that there is help at hand for us. And it comes from a man who blew it big time. None other than the Apostle Peter. He, after all, is the arch denier of Jesus, wasn't he? On that Easter week after the arrest of Jesus, just as Jesus predicted he would, not simply once, not twice, but three times in a matter of an hour or two, he denied vehemently that he had anything to do with Jesus Christ. Now, 30 years later, he writes this letter that we have as 1 Peter to some young Christians there in in the Mediterranean area who were facing increasing pressure from their culture to stay silent about their faith in Christ. They were facing serious opposition and the start of persecution. Therefore, this letter is as relevant today as it was then in the first century. Now don't forget that Christianity was birthed as a very marginalised faith. It was just there on the perimeter of society. And for the first 300 years of its life, that's where it was. And Peter talks about this a little later on in this letter. He talks about the fact that antagonism and persecution and opposition are never going to be far away from the Christian and the Christian church. He doesn't deny the reality of it. Indeed, if you just flip over a page to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, he writes this. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice! insomuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, praise God that you bear his name. He calls it a fiery ordeal, and indeed it was. If you know anything of the history of the church in the first century, you'll know that probably some of the readers of this letter would very soon find themselves imprisoned, tortured, exiled, or even put to death by crucifixion. As the emperor of the day, the emperor Nero, unleashed this state persecution upon the early Christian church. So what enabled them to keep going? To fight the good fight of the faith? Indeed, 
What's going to strengthen you and I, if we're a Christian, to keep going, to fight the good fight of the faith, to own Christ before our friends and our workmates, to live unashamed for him in a society that's increasingly hostile to the gospel? Well, Peter's answer is found at the very heart of this letter in chapter 2 that we've just read. He would say to us, the answer is quite simple and yet very profound. The answer boils down to one thing. One deep conviction. And it's about the preciousness of Christ. Look how he puts it. Firstly, in verse 4. He says, Christ is precious to his Father. The living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Christ is precious to his Father. And therefore, says Peter... He can become precious to the children of God, to the Christian. Look what he says in verse 7. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. Peter actually is testifying to what he himself personally discovered, isn't he? For the Lord Jesus Christ, as you know, restored him after his denials and sent him out as a messenger of this gospel. And here he is now as an older man writing to encourage the next generation of Christians. What does he want us to see? What does he want them to see? Firstly, the preciousness of Christ to the Father. Now, it's an interesting question, isn't it? What makes a child precious to their father? I thought quite a bit about this. And the thing that I've come down to on it is this. It is ultimately that they are an expression of themselves. They're an issue of their body. They're an expression of their being. Not simply physically, but they inherit something of the nature, of the mannerisms, of the disposition of their father. I had a very weird experience about uh, a month ago. Uh, I was meeting a guy. I didn't know him. I'd never met him before. I know his father very well. Met the guy for coffee at St Pancras Station. And there we were. And uh, as I went into the the coffee shop, I knew immediately who it was, although I'd never met him, because he just looked so much like his dad. But that wasn't the end of it. We spoke for about an hour. And time and time again, I found myself kind of wandering off in this conversation, because I'm thinking, you're just a dead ringer for your dad. You sound like him. You've got the same mannerisms as him. It's actually quite weird. It's like talking to a 30-year younger version of your father, and I'm not sure I can cope with it. But that's it, isn't it? You may have had the similar kind of experience. Do you remember how Jesus put it to his disciples in the upper room? He said, He who has seen me has seen my father. What an astonishing claim. What was he saying? He was saying, look, I'm the full revelation of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, how God thinks, how God ticks, what God wants in the world, look at me. I'm the embodiment of God. I am God come to earth. But why is Jesus described here in verse 4 as a living stone? And why does that make him precious? To the Father. It seems a little bit strange to us, doesn't he? What's Peter getting at? Well, Peter is borrowing an image from the Old Testament, 
as he does quite frequently in this chapter. In this time, he's, he's referencing back to an Old Testament prophet called Isaiah. And in chapter 28 of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world, God promises that he's going to send somebody who's going to lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. You'll see the, the quote of it there in verse 6. God is going to do something new. He's going to build a new city. He's going to build a new meeting place for people to know him, for people to come to him and relate to him. And it will all revolve around this cornerstone, this living stone. It will all revolve around his son. Likewise, in Psalm 118 that uh, Peter also references here, the psalmist foresees a day when God will come and do a new thing and make his light shine upon the world in a new way. But it also says, when that happens, his enemies will rise up against him, and they will reject the one that he has sent, but God will not be thwarted. He will win. He will build this city. He will see that this cornerstone is put in place and become the structure for the whole of a new humanity. Look, says Peter, the stone the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. God sent his son to be that cornerstone. He's put Jesus at the center of everything. All that God is about in the world revolves around his son, Jesus. The whole wonderful story. The Bible is a big story, isn't it? The whole story revolves around this son, Jesus. The complete history and destiny of mankind is wrapped up in him. He alone makes sense of the world. The Bible tells us he's the one who stands at the beginning of it all. He's the creator. He spoke this cosmos into being. He is the author of life. Also it tells us he stands at the very end of life, the end of history, as the judge of all mankind. He's the bookends of it all, but he's the focal point. The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Yet what is it that makes Jesus, as the cornerstone, precious to his father? It's simply this, his willingness to be the cornerstone. Because you might think, well, actually, that's a pretty important, pretty wonderful, pretty glorious job, isn't it? To be the focal point of it all. The creator, the judge, the one that the world is all about, the one that every human destiny is about. That's pretty good, pretty cool. But not so. Because along with that title comes suffering, comes agony, comes rejection. And that's what Peter is flagging up. See, Jesus comes to be the cornerstone, to lay down his life. The very start of his public ministry. Do you remember when he was baptized, we had a baptism? Wasn't that great, those baptisms, just a week or two ago? When Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven. It was the voice of the Father. I always smile when I read this in our English translation because you remember what it says? 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that strange? Well pleased. I mean, that's such a modern idiom, isn't it? But at Jesus' baptism, at the start of his public ministry, here's this voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then at the end of his life, as he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember that, that huge battle, that turmoil that Jesus goes through? And what's that all about? Well, we know, as he told Peter, he could have called upon legions of angels to come and rescue him. The battle in prayer in Gethsemane was simply this. Would he go through with it, knowing the agonies that awaited him, knowing the horrors of the cross, knowing the worst thing of all was going to be separation from his father as he bore the sins of his people? Would he do it? He didn't have to do it. And then wrestling in prayer until blood oozes out of him. He utters those words, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You see, that's why he's precious to the Father. The Father has this glorious plan to rescue people from every tribe and every nation throughout time. He has this wonderful design that he will reconcile people to himself. People like you and I who rejected him want to be God of our own lives. Not realising how horrendous that is in the sight of God. And the only way it can be dealt with is for God to send his very best, his only son, to pay the price for that rebellion, that rejection, that awful pride and sin. No wonder he's precious to the Father. He stands, you see, as the cornerstone. The only one who's able to rescue his people by his perfect obedience, by his sacrificial death. No wonder that the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, that at his name every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is he precious to the Father? Because he fulfilled, he obeyed the Father at immeasurable cost by going to the cross to fulfill the Father's plan to rescue you, to rescue me. That's why he's precious to his Father. With him I am well pleased. And because of that, says Peter, he becomes precious to the Christian. Look how he puts it in verse 7. To you who believe, this stone is precious. In a world that will always be in varying degrees in opposition to Jesus, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, this is how we stand. This is how we fight the good fight. This is where we get the right perspective on everything in life by knowing Christ to be our most precious possession. Look, says Peter, let me remind you who you are. We're very mixed up today, aren't we, as to who we are. What's my identity? This is your identity, says Peter, to those Christians, to every Christian. It's there in verse 9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. 
Peter ransacks four images, four familiar things for these Jewish Christians from the Old Testament to remind them of their identity. God has chosen you. God has chosen you to be his people, to represent him in the world, to to put his love and care on display. You are his special possession. Now, do you realize, I hope you do, that if you're a Christian, you are the most privileged person in all the world. Think about it. What is your inheritance? A friend of ours is a pastor in uh, Seattle. His daughter worked for Bill Gates. Very rich man. What's the inheritance of Bill Gates, I don't know, it runs to millions and millions and millions. In fact, he's put a lot of it in a trust, doesn't he, for charity, but there's some coming to his children. What's going to happen to that inheritance? As the years roll on, Bill Bill Gates will die, the money will go to his children. What happens as the years roll on? What value will the inheritance be to them on their deathbed? Absolutely zilch. What is your inheritance, Christian? Peter says in this letter... You have an inheritance that will never spoil, it will never fade, it will never perish. It's kept in heaven for you who believe. That's your inheritance. It's astonishing. Our inheritance transcends the grave. It goes on forever. It's a precious inheritance. And if you're a Christian, you're the most privileged person in all the world. It may not look like that with all the aggro that you might suffer for being a Christian. And I guess most days it doesn't feel like that. You don't feel yourself to be that special. But that's because you're looking in the wrong direction. You've got to look at it through God's eyes. What's your value to God? It's immeasurable. He gave his precious son to redeem you to bring you into his family. That's the value that he puts upon your soul and my soul as a Christian. There's no greater value, no greater worth in all the world than that. No greater privilege than belonging to Christ. You see, so many of our struggles as a Christian are because we look in the wrong direction. We look at the world and we've become troubled by the storms of life, forgetting there is a sovereign father who's in it all. We look at other people and the power of others, and we can feel intimidated by that, belittled by it. We get seduced by the false values of the world and think, oh, if only you could have that, then life would really be worth living. And then we strangely discover that when we achieve or obtain that, It actually isn't all it's cracked up to be. We're looking in the wrong direction. Most of all, we're far too consumed with ourselves. How different things will be if we looked in the right direction, if we looked in the direction of Christ. To you who believe, he is most precious. He is the most precious possession you have. Johnny started with asking us the question, what's our most precious possession? I remember as a child, it is a long time ago, so bear with me, but 
my, my dad, who I've spoken to you about before, my dad lived through the Great Depression in the 1920s when times were really bad. He lived through the Second World War. He lost his son, his wife. He had very little. He was a bus driver or bus conductor, actually. You don't have them now. He didn't have much money at all. We lived in a two-up, two-down house, council house. And as often is the case, whether you've got much or little, he had a, a precious possession. It was his blue box. So he had this little blue box. And in it, he kept his precious possessions, which was basically his money, his cash, which in those days was probably about £700. But I'm talking 40, 50 years ago, and this is essentially a poor man. Anyway, one night, on a Sunday night it was, BBC had a new serial. It was called World War of the Worlds. Is that H.G. Wells wrote that? The War of the Worlds. And uh, they started the program by what seemed to be a very real announcement. Please do not panic. It's like a newscaster. Aliens have been seen above London. Please stay indoors. We will stay in contact with you as able when we have more news. Do you know what my dad did? He ran upstairs. He went under the bed, because that's where he kept his blue box. And clutching his blue box, this is the absolute truth, he ran out into the garden to look up into the night sky to see if he could see the aliens. And in that one moment, he betrayed what was his most precious possession. And it wasn't us. It was his blue box. What's your most precious possession? It's a great question, isn't it? You see, for the Christian, in our best moments, we say, well, of course, it's Christ. He's altogether lovely. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the one who gave his very self to win me for the Father. He is beautiful. So let me ask you as we close, is Christ precious to you? I'm not asking if he's important, nor am I asking if he's interesting to you. I'm not asking if he's helpful to you or intriguing to you. I'm asking, is he precious to you? Is he precious? You see, if you're not yet a Christian, and I'm so glad you're here this afternoon, if you're on that journey to come to Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't got him the first preeminent in your life where God commands you to have him, then of course he won't be precious to you, will he? But don't you see, he must be. Because if the God who's made you and knit you together in your mother's womb and has revealed himself clearly to us through his son Jesus says, I've put him at the centre of everything. He's at the beginning and the end of the history of the world. He's at the beginning and the end of your life. Then you'd be a fool not to align yourself with God and his purpose. Do you see that? If he really is who he says he is, then God commands and demands that we put him first in our life. And he's proven, he's given the evidence, and we come up to it at Easter time, don't we? Not only by his death, but by his resurrection. And the proof, the factual proof for the resurrection is overwhelming. And if you haven't looked at it, I want to encourage you to look at it. 
But Christianity wasn't born in a lie, as one great historian put it when he examined the the history of the resurrection. It's based upon the facts of history. But if you won't have this Jesus as precious to you, then the tragedy is he'll become a stumbling block to you, as Peter talks about here. You'll trip over him. You see, there's no middle ground. There's no in-between place. Is he precious to you? Pursue him until he is. Put yourself in the way of it. Life explored is one way of doing that. The friends that have brought you, they love to talk to you about how they came to Christ and point you to him. And if you are a Christian here this afternoon, Christ won't be as precious to us unless we find time to grow in love with him. The bottom line I've discovered is this. I find time in my life to do what is most precious. Do you find that? So, confession time, strange though it may seem, Chelsea Football Club is very precious. I have no trouble reorganising my diary even this Thursday, they're playing Prague. Isn't this pathetic? I know the kickoff time, they're playing Sparta Prague in the quarterfinal of the Europa Cup. A meaningless affair, but it might get us into Europe. You see, if something is precious to you, it becomes the priority. If Christ is precious to us, it's a relationship, isn't it? You see, the Father loved the Son. There's a deep relationship. The son loves his children as the father loves his children and calls us to relationship. It's all about finding time to spend with Christ. We won't get the preciousness of Christ as we ought to unless we find time each day, unless we're convinced, utterly convinced of his worth. Do you remember this guy, Peter? I love Peter. I think because... I can probably, along with a lot of blokes here, identify with Peter. You know, Peter, he was, he was a courageous one. He was going to stand by Jesus. He wasn't going to be scared by them, these opponents and so on. But he was scared by a little servant girl and denied Jesus. He aspired to great things, but he didn't know himself. Till at the end of his life, as he writes in this letter, God opposes the proud, and my, was Peter proud? but he gives grace to the humble. And Peter, at one point, when others were leaving Jesus, it was Peter, in a brilliant moment, who turned to him and Jesus said, are you going to go as well? Lord, he said, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Christian friend, let's find time every day to meditate, to reflect, to allow God to fill part of our thinking, our important thinking on our emotions that day with the beauty and the preciousness of Christ. The great thing about the church is given us one another to do that. Loads of one another's in the New Testament. We need one another to encourage each other. We have modern means of communication unheard of when I was a child, a mobile phone. We can send texts. Hey, I've just reflected on this text today. I just want to share it with you. It helped me. I hope it will help you. We can do all sorts of ways like that where we can help one another and point one another to the preciousness of Christ. To you who believe, 
he is precious. May he be increasingly precious. May we grow day by day, week by week, month by month, year on year in an understanding of how precious Christ is. He's like a precious jewel, says the Bible. You know what a precious jewel? Well, maybe not. Maybe we haven't seen one. Perhaps we could go to the Tower of London and see the crown jewels. The thing about a precious jewel is you go on seeing something beautiful in it time after time after time. It's the same with Christ. He is so precious we can never plumb or fathom the depths of his beauty, of his love, of his grace, of his mercy to us. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. How wonderful. Let's pray. Father, we pray this one thing, that just as Jesus is precious to you, so he will become increasingly precious to every single one of us here today. If we don't yet know you, help us to search, knowing that you're not far from any one of us. Help us to seek him, knowing that you seek us in the first place. And if we do know you, and if we've lost sight of the preciousness of your being, Lord, forgive us, but then restore us, and then draw us afresh to the Saviour. May we be a church that encourage one another to delight in the Lord Jesus, our glorious Saviour. And we ask that not only for our good, but for your glory. Amen.